out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is David Eastall and the C86 show. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of Simon Oakes, who was in various bands, including Peach, Graham Weston, The Sons of Tundra, and quite a few others. Anyway, you're going to find out about that during this fascinating interview. So make notes, I will test you at the end, just to make sure that you are paying attention. I know there's lots of things that he mentions that I didn't, I had no idea about. Anyway, look, so this is it. So after several min- casual minutes of um, happy chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Simon, it's over to you. Well, I'm five years ahead of you. I was born in 1969, two weeks before Dave Grohl from the Foos. And so I missed out on the bands you just mentioned because I was about five or six. So for me, it was my mother's Beatles collection. She had the first five or six Beatles, but then she stopped collecting them because she said they got a bit silly and grew their hair. It was always her view the Beatles peaked with with sort of rubber sole or help, and it was all downhill from there. So we had the first five Beatles albums in the house on vinyl. And when I was about five or six, I just listened to those on fairly constant rotation. Uh, along with a bit of ABBA. And I think for me, the, the sort of lights on moment was weirdly, it was a combination of seeing Ultravox performing the voice on mm. Top of the Pops, which I thought was the most exciting music video I'd ever seen because they were buzzing around in a Jeep looking like being in a band was the most thrilling thing in the world. Um, and then I also caught a concert, and I didn't know what it was, uh, one afternoon on BBC Two, back in the days when there were only three TV channels and there was nothing to do. Um, I saw this this amazing band, and it, it took me a couple of months of asking all my friends if they could work out what it had been, because I think my mum had called me off before it finished, so I'd never worked out what I was watching. It turned out it was Genesis. I'd been right. watching a Genesis gig. So I had Ultravox and Genesis as these sort of first two bands that I was really into myself as well as a little bit of adam and the ants so this is me at about 11 i think probably yes um but that was all sort of i i grew up in liverpool so that but it wasn't long before i was listening to a lot of teardrops and echo and the bunny men and the whole sort of liverpool scene i was probably 13 but i thought you were going to say when you were you know it's that build-up i thought you were going to say barclay james harvest Concept for the people, you know, the Berlin one. I thought, well, yes, marvellous. Oh, yes, Genesis. So was that an old Genesis one or quite a one with Bill Collins in the front? Well, we say old now, but it wasn't then. It was only about four years old when I watched it. I think it was a 1977 concert or or what became Seconds Out. So I was watching this in about 82. It's old, but I am as well. So it was about four years before then. Yes. So what I then grew up with was this slightly split personality where I, 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 Genesis and Marillion had got their hooks in me, but I was really being pulled towards the teardrops and, and all of the indie scene in Liverpool and then somehow sort of fell into the Mary chain from, from all of that. So I think it was a bit confusing. My, my prog friends didn't understand why I was listening to Psycho Candy and my um, really cool indie friends couldn't understand why I was listening to IQ and Marillion, but it made sense to me. 
Yes, it did. It made, well, bizarrely, I have, a, I have a brother who's seven years older than me, and he was just perfect for prog rock, and he loved prog rock. Um, so I, I sort of, and I worshipped my brother. So I, I used to sneak into his room and play his records when he wasn't there because he had said, no, don't play my records. So obviously you go and do, do the thing you're not supposed to. So I used to sort of play the Yes and Genesis and Wishbone Ash and Barclay James Harvest and the solo work of Rick Wakeman, which I know quite well. But when you're 11, 12 and you just consume it, it religiously, you know, it really does get embedded in there. So, um, yeah, that, that period of music, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I know people are always a bit surprised. I know, know so much about that. But then, you know, that was that moment where I just loved it. And there was also um, Deep Purple and Black Sabbath thrown in there for good measure, but not, and he didn't, he refused to have a single, you know, he had no singles. It was all vinyl records and they all had to be put in those plastic sheets, covers, because he was so nerdy. He was an accountant. It all, <laughs> it all makes sense. So when Marillion came along, I was a little bit like, oh my God, this is so watered down. This isn't the real thing. I, I, I know the real thing. I've listened to Steve Hackett's solo albums, you know. Yeah. So it was very strange. So, um, yes. You, you, had to, you had to dig deeper into the neo-prog. You had to get down to Twelfth Night and Palace and IQ, I think, to get to a slightly you know, purer strain of, of neo-prog. Brilliant. Yeah, they were a bit commercial, weren't they, by the end? They were a bit. <laughs> but I did, in my obsession meet the person who started the whole prog movement, who was a keyboard player from Scotland. God, I've interviewed so many people. He was in a band called Clouds and One, Two, Three, and they were in the 60s. And he said all the you know, people like John Anderson and all the prog people came and watched him as he was playing keyboards. And David Bowie, the reason I really wanted to interview him was that Bowie was obsessed with him, so would follow him about. Really? And, and, um, and then one, one day he got fed up and smashed his equipment and just walked off stage. And then decades later, David Bowie kept talking about this guy saying, he's a genius, you could go and check him out. And, um, and so I, I sort of was very excited that I, I discovered the source of prog rock doing these interviews and um, i didn't know there was a source i'll have to look that up i love these <laughs> origin stories it's like the one of uh, it's only much later in life i've really got into uh sort of the english folk rock and, and fairport and everything but i've read some of those books there where they try and trace it all back to one or two people yes well um, I, I can send you the link and then you can hear the literally the source of prog rock and yeah, yeah oh, that all makes sense but yeah he he smashed his keyboard up and was never played another instrument after 1969 in the 1970 but you know it's the the birth of prog so there you go so that was good so when did a musical instrument sort of appear in your life um well musical family my mum was a music teacher so you know she had me on the piano by the time I was five or six and it was actually the trumpet I played at school so I, I learned to do music properly much to the chagrin of a lot of people I've been in bands with where I've sort of been going, oh, you can just count the quavers and the crotchets here. And they're going, what? Um, so I did, I did have that proper training on trumpet. Uh, and then, like a lot of people, I picked up uh, a guitar in order to impress friends yes. and girls when I was about 13 or 14. Um, and, then, and that was just self-taught, which felt a lot more cooler than having music lessons. Uh, and then ever so since then... I was going to say, yeah. so with your Liverpool moment, you kind of missed the Eric scene, I guess, didn't you? With all those cool bands yeah. like Big in Japan and Bill Drummond and Jane Casey and um, Ian Brodie. So they had slightly been and gone, hadn't they? They had. They had. I mean, you... What, what was... 
Yeah, I'm trying to think what was a big local band at that time, and there wasn't. There, there seemed to be a sort of gap. Well, you had, I mean, Frankie goes to Hollywood. That was what the Liverpool scene was focusing on by the time I was of a good gig-going age. And, and yeah, it did seem that there wasn't such a strong indie scene there. Yes. Most of the gigs I went to see in Liverpool were bands that were touring that would be playing at the Empire of the Royal Court. I guess by um, then, the Man- Manchester had slightly taken the... They kind of yeah. batting really, hadn't it? Because because I've sort of put it, you know, like you get the punk period and then post-punk with bands like Gang of Four and Magazine, Public Image Limited, and then, you know, like Teardrop Explodes and U2 and Simple Minds in that early 80s. But it was kind of 83 was like, this, for me, the start of indie pop with Smiths. And then from 83 to 87, you know, it was like this kind of glorious period. And when they broke up, there was kind of then that party seemed to finish. And I, as, as you probably kind of might imagine, most bands have a five-year narrative, don't they? They get together, they have their 12 yeah. months, it's great. You know, and in those days, you know, they get a single, John Peel played it, John Peel session, first album, things going well. Then the second album, tricky, third album, really tricky. And um, that's normally the end of the band. So when the Smiths kind of had that moment in 87, all those other bands like, yeah, yeah, no, and the, the Wolfhounds and the June Brides, it all felt like they were all folding together because I think they just had enough. And the next wave of 16 to 18-year-olds were coming along and they were like, we want our, our band. We want to discover that new single. We don't want the Smiths and all those boring old people anymore. And also Ecstasy came along. So suddenly there was this kind of movement towards the dance scene with, you know, Primal Scream and Stone Roses and, uh, yeah, the Happy Mondays and bands like that, as well as the Orb. And then we obviously had... 4AD with, you know, Throne Muses and the Pixies. So you were kind of at that stage, kind of a, kind of a bit of an interesting period, wasn't it, as a, as a person beginning, a ba- you know, being in a band? I, I think it was. I mean, that was a time when music still had that really strong tribal identity. But as you've identified, kind of 86, 87, you've got a couple of very strong tribes that have just sort of reached the mainstream and... Uh, um, and, and then there's all this exciting new stuff coming along. Uh, and I can remember you know, with a couple of my friends, my best friend, Pat Reed, we were reading The Melody Maker and I mean, it seemed like every few weeks there was a new scene that we needed to be really excited about. So we were very excited about C86, but we'd only just finished being excited about the Mary Chain and the Cull um, in, its sort of, in its sort of revived format. And then suddenly shoegazing was beginning to, to appear, which was the thing I really loved. I mean, I think that that was... That got my heart in around 87, 88, the Valentines and Lush. Um, those were the bands that really influenced the first serious demo tapes and recording I was trying to do. Yes. Um, I b- went out and bought a Fender Jaguar, which you can probably see just above my head if you look up there on the wall as a Fender Jaguar. I went out and bought that because all the boys in Ride and my bloody Valentine had them. I got my <laughs> my um, my Jaguar guitar. I had my uh, uniform Breton top. I grew a, a sort of mop haircut. Um, and I adored those bands. But I was still really excited with, with the whole um, C86 and the, the more gothy side of things. All of these things, really, they were all going on at the same time. And I was still secretly listening to Yes and Genesis, probably, when nobody else was looking. No, I absolutely am. And then waves of American bands like Galaxy 500, who, again, one of, one of the records that was never off my turntable when I was 18. Yes. I think I was flipping Galaxy 500, My Bloody Valentine, uh, a couple of other things, Spaceman 3, over and over. Yeah, so what was your first gig you went to? First gig was Ultravox. 
um, based on that seminal experience of seeing them in the Jeep on top of the Pops, um, I went to see uh, Ultravox, the kids' matinee, because Ultravox played two shows in Liverpool. They did one at five o'clock for a young audience, and then they did the grown-up show at eight o'clock, which is probably good for them. They probably doubled their money and their PRS revenues off doing that. Yes. Um, actually, I interviewed someone last week who said the same thing, Andrew. Andrew, somebody, and he said, yeah, we used to go into, people had two shows and it was like, great. You know, it's like, yeah. you know, when we were at a certain age, you just went to the first show, had a nice time. And then, yeah, they sold lots of sweets and chocolate. And um, yes, in the evening, they sell lots of booze. So it's, it's quite interesting. So your, was your first band Peach then? No, um, I was, oh, well, it was the first one that did anything in terms of there was an actual vinyl record that you could hold. But um, I, I moved to London when I was about 21 um, and joined that band. But there'd been a lot of fun along the way. Um, I mean, I don't know if you've, if you've, you're a very busy man, I think, with all the people you interview. Um, but there are a few little odds and ends about me online, which you can find. And of course, one of my uh, claims to frame was that I was in a band for about 10 minutes with Amelia from Tallulah Gosh. Um, and I was also... Well, I was, at, I was at university, the same university Midley was at, and Stuart Lee. Oh, what? Um, Oxford? Yeah, this is my name dropping, but I was, I was at university, and I was in three separate bands. One of the bands was Amelia was in, one of the bands Stuart Lee was in, and the other band Al Murray, the pub landlord, was in. Because so I, I know you've got the Al Murray one, <laughs> which is Last Man on Earth. But um, I am obsessed with Amelia Fletcher, and to a certain extent Stuart Lee. So it's very exciting, because... Amelia's, she's, has she got a CBE or MBE? She has. Well, you'd like this then. I was looking up things before I came on that you might be interested in. This cassette I've got here, right? A-side is the demo cassette of the, uh, is the demo of the band I was in with Amelia called Bloom. And the B-side is the only known recordings we've got the band with Stuart, which is called Dust Harvest. And it's all here on a little TDK cassette. I really should digitise that at some point, probably. My God, because um, Amelia's discography is quite amazing. And, and literally this week, she's, well, no, she's just brought out, an, you know, started a new record label, well, a record label, and has put out a compilation next month, March 2022. Um, yeah. So she's incredibly prolific. I mean, you can't really keep hold of what she's into because she's guested on so many people. And she was in Tallulah Gosh, then Heavenly. So where does, um, where does Bloom sit in this? Well, Bloom was, um, I, it was just, it was my last year at uni and um, I was obsessed with Lush and I thought, I want to be in, in, in a cool sort of uh, non-gender specific band like this. This is great. So uh, I, I, there were a couple of girls in my year who played bass and drums and we, and we, we sort of pestered Amelia until she said she was prepared to try and, and do this. We got as far as making a demo cassette and rehearsing a few times, but never actually got quite as far as a gig, unfortunately. But I do have the cherished demos. Um, but unfortunately, I mixed them down on a 16 track that I hired that played things at half speed. And because I was a student and hadn't got any money, I had to make the tape last as long as possible. So I, I, I hired from this harsh shop in Oxford the only 16 track machine that would run at half speed. So you get more tape for your buck. And I've never found another 16 track that runs at half speed like that. I think it was the only model. So that's sitting in a cupboard somewhere. Oh, that's unfortunate. So, so what years were this? Because I'm... That would be 1990, I think. Was Stuart Lee at university in 1990? He would have left in 89. He was the year above me. Right. So we were doing, we were doing Dust Harvest in 88, 89. 
I've got you. Um, Blimey. And that was a lot of fun because I, I kept trying to persuade him he should listen to more progressive rock and would play him Peter Hamill records, which he would laugh at. And then he would give me cassettes, which he'd, he'd curated, which were just full of very, very long lists of bands I needed to listen to, like Agitation Free or Winter Hours, uh, which I'd walk around the town listening to on my Walkman. Um, yes. Well, they, there you go. I mean, you should listen because Stuart's done a couple of radio shows um, and he and mostly their gigs he went to in one is the 80s and one's in the 90s. I remember his <laughs> you'd laugh and well, not just laugh, you'd sort of smile and find him in fascinating, actually, because at that point, I'm sure he would have been in bands like Green on Red. Actually, he was just into a lot of music, wasn't he, really? Yeah. Did you see the, the, the film he did about Robert uh, Lloyd and the Nightingale? I did, and I listened, I listened, well, I listened to the interview when I was just going to see what, what you do, so I knew what I would be doing. I, I, <laughs> I saw him, so I, I listened to the Nightingale's one you, you did with him, yeah. Yes, uh, dear Rod Stewart, yes, there you go. And there's a nice one with Robert Lloyd as well. Yes, my God, that's very, so your early days, that's, that is good to name drop those straight in there. So look, then you had, you know, I mean, Lush was on 4AD records and had a record with, um, I don't know, was it Robin Guthrie produced one of those records as well? I think it was, yeah, they were all on 4AD, weren't they? They were, and they did, they suddenly managed to get out of that North London squat scene of like My Bloody Valentine and Throne Muses and Silverfish, and then became the darlings of Britpop for a very short time. So um, they yeah. straddled that moment really well and became quite, quite a major player, really. Though, um, yes, it all ends in tears, as you could imagine. So, um, yeah, so what then happens after, after that moment with um, Bloom and Dust, Dust Harvest? Well, like a lot of people, it's 1990, Thatcher's Britain. Nobody really knows what to do. And I just moved to London with a lot of friends and we all lived in horrible, filthy, shared student houses, trying to survive off income support um, and and attempting unsuccessfully to get to get bands up and going with no money. I auditioned for a few things. I, was, I think I was briefly in a band called Revolver for about 10 minutes. Do you remember them? No. They were a bit like Ride, but only had one record, I think. But... but um, I remember I went and jammed with them for a bit. I was in uh, a band called Gorgeous Space Virus for about 10 minutes, which were really good. And I was nearly in Rub Ultra. So there were a lot of these bands that ultimately probably no one remembers apart from you and me yes. um, that, that I, I was applying for. This was back when you used to get the Melody Maker and, and you'd open it up and it said 18 to 25 is only need apply. Um, <laughs> yeah. Which is extraordinary how... That's one of the things that has just surprised me, and I'm sure you so much, is that back then there was still a sense that if you hadn't made it by the time you were 25, it's kind of like the Rolling Stones myth of, of music, but the, the, you might as well give up because there was only a pub band waiting for you. This whole era now of, of heritage bands and, and people being able to create and curate small audiences is, is wonderful. Yes. But back then I thought time was running out for me. I was 22. The adverts all said, give up if you're over 25. And Peach felt like about my, my last attempt to try and join a band. And I think I was 20, the grand old age of 23. Um, and, and I went to see them because I had a Fender Jaguar and a stripy Breton top and looked like I was in ride. I, I think I got, I got the audition more or less when I went through the door. Because um, back then, the intention with Peach, um, which later would become a part of, of the Tool family yes. tree, amazingly, Peach back then wanted to be an indie band. So the, the reference points were very much ride, 
uh, Swerve Driver, another Oxford band who were around yes. when I was there. So um, 80s and Swerve Driver and, and, and um, Swerve, Swerve Driver, what did I say? Yeah, what was the other one that Justin really loved? Oh, Slow Dive. He was obsessed with Slow Dive. And yeah, and there was another band called Curve, but they might have been a bit more Curve early. So they were slightly, they all very enigmatic looking bands, weren't they? Yes, yes, there you go. And but I think I, it, oh, it there worked. Oh, there was a band called the Pell Saints. I remember seeing them. Oh, yes, loved them. Lush Two albums. We're on a, uh, doing a double, uh, a, a tour with them. And that's where I saw them on, um, yes, when they came to the Norwich Arts Centre. Um, yes. Dear Pale Saints. And they had lots of songs in 5-4, which as, as, as someone with this, this prog rock side to my split personality, I really liked the way that Pale Saints were, were in the, the really hip 4AD camp, but they were playing songs in 5-4 like King Crimson. So I, I really liked that. Yes. So what was the your so had Peach begun by the time you had sort of joined the band? Yeah, Peach was a band called it had been called Hang David, then it had become called Unwind. And when I joined, there'd, there'd been a temporary lineup with a singer called Steve, who later ended up being the bass player and swerve driver. I, I always mean to try and do a little Pete Frame family tree. Yes, you do need stuff. to do that, don't you? Because so I replaced Steve, who was later in Swerve Driver, as the singer of this band, who 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 had got themselves together, uh, and and had done a couple of shows under the name Unwind. I think Hang David kept going as a different name though, as well. It was all, a, you know, these little scenes when you're all kids. Everybody's been in everybody else's band. Yes. Uh, and yeah, we we got rehearsing and and we we had a and. Um, we were, I mean, I don't know how, how much of, of this side of stuff you know, but uh, um, Justin Chancellor, who was the bass player in Peach, his brother, Jim Chancellor, who's now Mr. Music Industry, head of fiction and various other things, and uh, the man reputed of bringing Snow Patrol to the big time, he had set up, Jim had set up a little record label in his house in Lily Road in, in Hammersmith, so they were running the band and had set up this little label called Mad Minute Records. So what was great um, was, was that no sooner had we formed and rehearsed up about five or six songs than Jim was prepared to put out a first vinyl and, and get a product out for us. Yes. Uh, so you did a few cassettes, Flow With The Tide, and then Don't Make Me yep. Your God. Was, was Don't Make Me Your God the first album or single you were on? The, no, um, the first the first thing that came out, yeah, there was "Flow with the Tide," which is an old Amelia Bloom song. Uh, most of the songs on that one were the ones I'd originally written for myself and Amelia, and had, and had just sort of made a bit more rock, D C eighty six them and made them a bit more um, shoegazy. Yeah. So that first one, "Flow with the Tide," yeah, was was um, our demo. Then we did. Don't make me your golden signpost in the sea, which was the first vinyl. Uh, and, and then, then after that, you did, you did dis disappear and burn burn EP before the. You've album. done your research. You know all this stuff. This is great. Um, <laughs> yep, we did. We did various singles and EPs punctuated with cassettes. Because uh, yeah, the industry. Looking back, then I'm sure some of your other guests must talk about this. It was so different the way all the means of production was owned by the companies. You didn't have any money signing on. 
um, because you were allowed to sign on, you didn't have a job. So you hadn't, you really hadn't got any money. So you just sat around waiting for some, somebody to fly in and say, you're great. Make a set. Here's a thousand quid for a couple of days um, in a studio. Uh, so we used to find that somebody would come along who really quite liked us and, and Jim would be very good at, at leveraging a grand out of them to send us into the studio for two days. We'd make a cassette, then the record label would pass on it, but we'd have another couple of tracks done. And sort of that way, <laughs> we gradually, falteringly over a two-year period, managed to produce an album. An yes. album and a couple of other EPs. And were you kind of influenced by the American scene? I just wonder if you were into people like Fish, PH, you know, with a PH, and um, not the lead singer of Marillion. And also, Jelly, is it Jellyfish as well from America, who had this like bit of a psychedelic rock vibe, who, you know, sold millions of copies, didn't they? Especially Fish. I just wondered if those bands sort of, you know, interested you. You know, though it's a bit Grateful Deadish, I know the latter, but um, I just wondered if they were starting to come into your orbit as well, because they're kind of a bit progressive, weren't they? No, our, our American influences were much harder very quickly. I, it's like I was saying earlier, I look back on that phase of my life and can't believe how me, your musical identity as a fan could change in 18 months because an amazing new wave of stuff you hadn't heard would suddenly come along. So I'd already got my prog and my C86 and my shoegazing and everything. And then in Peach, a couple of the guys there, they, they were listening to their dual identity. They'd been listening to shoegazing, but they'd actually been listening to Metallica as well. And then off the Metallica, they started listening to Rollins Band, uh, Ministry, Caius, um, these bands in America. And I would turn up for a rehearsal at, the, uh, at Lily Road. And, and, and that's what, by 93, I'd, in 92, when I'd first joined the band, I'd be knocking at the door going, hello, I'm here to rehearse. Because we'd go and rehearse in the basement, um, which ITV once made a documentary about because we um, upset all the neighbours in the street so much. I've got that on VHS cassette somewhere. So Excellent. in 92, I was knocking at Peach's door and I'd go in and all you could hear was slow dive uh, and ride. By 93, you'd knock at the door and you'd be hearing um, Rollins' band uh, or and then Tool because uh, Jim had been sent the first Tool demo, uh, which he'd found a life-changing experience. And when we went out, we went out to play in America. We did a few dates out there in 92, uh, end of 92, beginning of 93. And by that point, all the American bands we were listening to were really, really heavy suddenly. Um, which so is were, how you, were you going into sort of things like Soundgarden as well as... Um... Oh, yes, that's the other one. Soundgarden. Soundgarden, Tool, Caius. Pearl Jam? Not so much. Interestingly, that Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains were seen by the band as being a little bit commercial. Mm -hmm. We were sort of... We, we were... We were much more in the LA Caius territory, I think. We, we weren't so sure about them. Yeah. Not sure why. <laughs> so were you also kind of curious about the, you know, because obviously, you know, 91, John Major gets in, and then suddenly there was this kind of period where Britpop starts to sort of appear, and suddenly everyone like Blur, Suede, Pulp, Oasis, you know, that, that whole world of Elastica and Sleeper. So were you sort of a bit thinking we shouldn't really be quite so heavy? They're, they're, they're putting these kids on top of the pops at the moment. That was unfortunately exactly what happened. I mean, it was it was difficult to get a major label deal 
with the music we were playing, period, irrespective of whether or not we were a good example of it that somebody would want to actually invest in, um, I don't even think that a fantastic version of Peach would probably have got much money behind it in 94. Nobody really knew what to do with it. I mean, you had the Smashing Pumpkins suddenly seemed to be opening up something. You did have Nirvana as well. So there were some really quite commercial bands there. But everything changed in 95, 96. You're right. I mean, we, we, were, we were playing down the Falcon and the... Where were the other ones we were always playing up in Was Camden? it the George Roby? George Roby. Um, oh, what was the other one? Oh, you know the ones, though. Um, and suddenly... Um, everybody was was doing some kind of knockoff version of Blur or Oasis. It, it, it's true, um, and it, and you you couldn't get arrested with the kind of music we wanted to play. So what uh, was it? So can you remember much about the recording the album, giving birth to a stone? Well, as I say, that album is is actually a composite of all of these various. It was it wasn't recorded in one one go, David. It, it had been that we'd done a single two tracks, another three tracks, and these things where record companies would go so far towards giving us a thousand quid to see if we could make an even better demo, and and then they'd pass on it. So, but we get another couple of tracks in the bank. A lot of the bands we knew, like Min Four Hundred as well, were, were producing material in this way. Um, they were on the same label as us at the time. Uh, and I, I'm, the band I'm in today is still with, with some of them as well. So, so no, then, it was done. It, it was done. Uh, no, sorry. And then did you have a sort of a, a band meeting and said, the quote Jim Morrison, this is the end? Uh, well, I think what happened was as well, yeah, we, we were having an identity crisis because you, you'd still got that. We'd started off with, with quite a strong shoegazy ethos. And then... We, we seemed to be pushing more and more into this harder and harder rock territory. And my vocal was becoming quite a poor sit with, with, <laughs> with a band that was increasingly listening to Henry Rollins, Tool and Soundgarden. Uh, so it was just getting very difficult knowing. We, we kind of got ourselves into an identity crisis corner. So, yeah, I was the first one who went. I said, I just don't think I can do this anymore. Um, and they did one more tour, tour without me and then, and then turned into a different band called Sterling who had one album which Paul Tipler produced. Right. They, I don't know if you've come across Sterling. I mean, that, mm. that's 1996. And I went off and formed a little band called Giza for my own amusement with uh, a, a couple of friends, which we did for a year or two. Giza, yes. like the Icelandic, the Icelandic landform, G-Y-S-E-R. <laughs> Yes. Did that was that just kind of an emotional release from the at the time of Peach? Was that sort of, you know, not quite your tin machine? Was that just more of a oh, let's just have a bit of a break here? Yeah, it it was. It was part of a of a of a of a, of a pattern for someone like myself who's long li- lived on the sort of edges of the scene that's at the edge of a scene. Um, every time you do something for a few years and then. It's, it can often lose fun because it's, it's not really kind of gone anywhere, but it's really hard work. And you just want it to be fun again. And I, I've often found that as one band is reaching its natural end, I tend to find myself on another day of the week in a rehearsal room with friends having a laugh. And then that becomes the next project. So, yeah, <laughs> I, I had yes. one foot out of the door in Peach and ended up in Giza. 
who, which yeah. was just us playing around for a laugh. So then, I mean, because then the, the music industry changes rapidly, doesn't it? Because then we have Napster coming in and, you know, everything, you know, the great days of sort of, I suppose the 90s was very much a sort of, the record labels did get very big. And there was a lot of PR companies at that time, weren't there, being quite arrogant and swaggering around. It was a bit of champagne and cocaine period, wasn't it? So there was the good times. But then you had, you know, Team Tony and New Labour. So there was a there was another kind of wave of enthusiasm. But then... At the next stage, I do get a bit confused myself what happens really from there, because then there's Marilyn Manson and then there's kind of gangster rap, isn't there? Yes, it's it, uh, I mean, all kinds of exciting new things start coming along. Um, I think it, it, the, the narrative maybe becomes a bit harder to, to describe. But, you know, what I've always thought is, is, is that I don't know if there's a bit of white privilege going on but the narrative of music which is always about how there was psychedelia and then there was prog and then there was punk and then there was this and then there was this and then there was this and then it gets a bit complicated it, it sort of gets a bit complicated at exactly the point that the world wakes up to the fact there's actually an awful lot of other music going on yes and and it's not just all being channeled through the filter of the enemy and the melody maker and radio one uh, and Radio One's interesting evening shows that, in fact, it gets really confusing around them because maybe, just maybe, everyone begins to realize just how diverse music is. I don't know. It's it's possible. Yeah, that's what happens around then. I think. Um, I mean, I suppose with the eighties, there is. I didn't really sort of realize just how many different tribes there were. So there was the sort of psychobilly, and then the narco punk, and then there's. Um, yes, goth and and yes, I've, yeah. And then there's the indie scene, and then there's kind of a bit of a rock, rock heavy scene as well. So and a bit of two tone. So there is kind of there's a guy called Sam Neil who's brought a, brought a couple of books out, and you know about the tribes. And you think, oh yes, of course, there's these they're real little niches. And I think when you're really kind of aware of it, and you're consuming them, you know whatever form it is like the in our day i suppose it could have been the new musical musical express and melody maker and sounds you kind of know what's going on but if you're slightly outside it it kind of just all passes you by very quickly doesn't it and you just have no idea it really does um i did i mean i found living in london the the music that that was i could never i could never find a way to to really influence my own music with it but um drum and bass um and some of the more commercial sides like Metalheads and, and Goldie, I loved that. Um, 93, 94, I used to go to drum and bass clubs to dance in the evening sometimes. Uh, further musical confusion going on in my head. Yes. Um, but David Bowie tried it with Earthling, so um, yeah, he, he did have a go, but yeah, it was all right. So then, yeah, so were you, at this stage, had you sort of put music a little bit on the pause button and, and had sort of got your career together outside the world of rock and pop. Indeed, I had. So I, I was doing a PhD and, and working at university and, and doing things like that, which sort of took the wind out of music a little bit. My band Geezer did turn briefly, had a name change and became called Graham Weston for about two years. Uh, and we, we did a thing there where we just mucked around with, with samples a bit because I had a Pentium P90 computer and and I, I remember that that time when suddenly you were freed from the tyranny of the four track and, and couldn't quite believe what this box w- was able to do. 
Um, um, it was mainly because we were struggling to find a drummer that me and the other guy, Adam, in, in Giza, because we were really struggling to record drums well. We just started cutting up little drum loops and beginning to mix them in, in various bootleg programs we'd got. And we inadvertently did make some demos, which got the entire music industry really excited for a while. At one point, we reportedly had about 30 labels chasing after us. Um, and I think we've got a publishing deal with Chrysalis ahead of all of that. But because we didn't actually have a drummer, it all, that project all sort of fell apart a little bit because um, we couldn't perform it all live. And it, it took us quite a while to try and do that, and it didn't work. And at that point, I just thought, this has been very hard work for about 10 years. Uh, and as is my want, I had foot out the door and had started messing around playing uh, harder rock music again. Yes. So you did a couple of singles with Grand Western, Just Whistle yeah. and Radio Caroline. So this was the Millennium Bug period, wasn't it? So we were very excited about the that period. So was it? Was, did did it seem like kind of fun? Because this this time you have a female fronted you know singer. Well, it started off being really good fun. Um, We'd started listening to Beck by then and we're thinking, this is really good fun. And I was I would often go and dance uh, in the evenings at a club called Blow Up. That was, was it on Walk Dean Street? Oh God, I used to have those compilations. It was so yeah. it was a bit Austin Powers, wasn't it? It was a bit Austin Powers, but it was an awfully it was awfully good fun. Um and you know, I'd been digging around in my parents' record collection and finding Lee Hazelwood and Nancy Nancy Sinatra records and thinking, these are great as well. So uh, the late, the, yet another musical twist of thinking, this is all really good. Um, so yeah, th that song, Just Whistle, which, which was Radio One single of the week at one point, I seem to Right, excellent. Um, yeah, um, it didn't sell any copies, but we, we were Radio One single of the week. It's, that, that was just us messing around with little samples and having fun. Yes. And so often with these things, it did stop being fun after two or three years one's expectations built around it that it was it needed to go somewhere and it needed to do something so yeah as you say i was uh probably had more of an eye on my on, on work and paying the mortgage towards the end of that period never mind it was that close though wasn't it so then we get into the o years the famous o years this is where you you sort of form sons of tundra sons of the tundra which is was really peach again because by that time, um, the Peach album was getting quite a lot of retrospective press because the bass player had joined Tool and Tool were winning Grammys and doing really well. So our back catalogue in Peach, that album made up of all the little demo cassettes and singles glued together, that suddenly had a commodity value and it got sold to a couple of record labels in the States with reasonable sums of money changing hands. Um, it was the first time I'd ever got a, a, a check for any music I'd done, which I could actually go out and, and spend. It was great. Um, so that just gave me a bit of confidence to think, oh, actually, people really like that band Peach I was in. They still, and, and we, you know, early days of my having a MySpace page, we put up, we made up a little, um, this was me and the original drummer from the band, Rob we put together a little website for anyone that was interested in Peach, thinking, you know, we can just communicate with all these fans we suddenly seem to have in the States. Mm. And yeah, they were making contact, getting in touch, saying, is there anything else you've released? Which is when purely for a bit of fun and we liked doing it, Rob and I decided that we'd start making music in that style again. So it was a very long 
strange route back to the music we'd been doing uh, 10, 12 years before. Yes, and that's again, because there was a couple of songs, it was on the Bones of Brave, Brave Ships, I believe, Walking Away from the Fear of Failure. That's quite yeah. a proggy wrong, uh, record, uh, song, that, isn't it? Because I was... I can't, you know, the beginning of it really, really reminds me of somebody, which I can't work out. But um, yes, it's quite, it's quite a nice song, isn't it? Uh, I, I'm, well, I'm glad you like that. Thanks. That, that, that is, yeah, that's both about Shackleton. And it's, it's, yeah, I wonder if there's something slightly autobiographical in, in that as well, that one. Um, yeah, that is, uh, we really enjoyed making that record. That took about 10 years to make because at that point, um, and anyone anyone listening who is thinking yes this sounds a bit like my career of lots of bands that have um people have quite liked but has never quite got the momentum to pay for itself commercially you know and jobs get in the way um babies families started to come along around that around around that time in my life and that that album you're talking about the shackleton one i think it took us about eight years to make that right um, like four times the length of time I was actually in Peach and it took that amount of time to make one album. But when you're busy with new babies and nappies and yes. sleepless nights, it's amazing how time speeds up. So um, when you got your first work album together with the band, this is 2004, did that yeah. come together? Because that had only just formed for a couple of years before this was, um, yes, you hit the recording studio. Yeah, well... What had happened was Rob, who was the drummer in Peach, he had sort of, I, I was living with him for years. We were flatmates. He'd ended up playing the drums when we tried to do Graham Weston live uh, and it didn't quite work. So we'd started playing together. He'd been in fantastic bands, Submarine and Jet Boy, who I still think are one of the greatest bands that never made it. And if you've come across them, John Wayne Army, he was in that as well for a bit. Rob had kept playing. We put together um, Peach, but he decided to move on to bass. And then that's when we went and got Andy Prestige, who'd been the drummer in Min 400. So it all goes a bit Pete Frame family tree here again. Yes. So Sons of the Tundra, which is Peach version two, basically, was me and the drummer from Peach, but the drummer had moved on to bass. And then we got the original drummer from Min 400 to come and join us. So that we started off as a three-piece like that. My God, that's um, very exciting, isn't it? So had you got everything sort of rehearsed and prepared before you went into the studio, or were you doing it slightly over a period of time? We did it in my basement in my flat in Balham. I lived in this little flat that had a concrete coal cellar in it, which was like a nuclear bunker. You could make so much noise in it in a residential street and nobody knew we were doing it. Um, so we did just set up and, and played and recorded it all ourselves down there. The first two albums and quite a lot of bones of brave ship are all just recorded in the coal cellar under my flat in balham blimey that's um, very spooky that is incredibly and how come this out this this band is kind of is lasting and longer than the your other sort of moments is it something that's a bit more sort of just part-time it's a bit part-time although it has gained a bit of traction over the last four years again i'd say um for various reasons, we'll, we'll come back to that in a, in a bit. But yeah, it, it settled down into, um, I guess, kind of where I wish music had always been in my life. Is is it's it, it's it's it just knows what it is. It, it, it's it's an absolute passion. I, 
exists for itself and the few people that want to listen to it. There's as much or as little as, it, as I care to make. It doesn't really matter if it makes money or not. It's just, it just is. And it has, yes. I think it's completely free of the weight of expectations as you get older. Um, if you decide you just want to make music, write it, record it, put it out for anyone that wants to listen. And there is no agenda of secretly hoping someone's going to pick it up and get you on a, a gig around the yes. world. None of that. It, it just, it just is. And we do some... find as what sorry. No, I was going to say, you wouldn't believe how many bands, I suppose, I suppose it's most of the 80s, who had that period, they went, oh dear, just got on with the rest of their lives, have sort of vaguely reformed, but just really liked to record a new EP, possibly an LP, play a couple of dates here and there a year, if, if that, and just kind of just keep it as a really nice experience. And it's like, this is kind of a nice release from my day job or my other worlds that I have to do deal with. So it's, yes, you know, it, music has, does, people still want to make it, but they just think, I just don't want it to be anything more than a bit of fun. A bit like doing the park run on Saturday morning. You know, you're not going to win, but you're going to have a nice time. You might get a personal well, I think that's, that's where I... Yeah, it's where our generation are lucky. You, you've had social, technological and economic changes that allow that to happen. But like I said earlier, when I was young, and I would think any, you know, people today who want to make a living in music are 20, they probably can't imagine this world where all the adverts in the back of the Melody Maker said, over 25s don't apply. You know, you're too old to do this. But we loved doing it. That's why we did it. People who took up playing golf or fishing or flower arranging because they loved it at that age. Nobody tells them to give it up at 25 and they keep doing it for their whole lives. And I think, you know, the people you, you're mentioning there, the other bands like me, we, it's, it's, it's not different from that, is it? It's something we loved that of course we always wanted to do. But back then when we started off, the technology, the money, everything else, you couldn't have done that because you couldn't have got a record out really. You, you, you simply, it was very difficult to access a studio and get the economy of scale to get something released or get any, if you were an older band just doing it for fun. So producing that would have been quite difficult. Mm. Disseminating the music would have been impossible unless John Peel wanted to play a bunch of, you know, 30, 40 something people who are just making music for fun. Where would you have, have gained an audience? So, so this combination of being able to find, I mean, with Sons of the Tundra, we don't have that many fans. We, might, we could probably never play a tour because there's probably only about three people in every major city that would come. But when you put them all together, you've got a few thousand Facebook people. That's the audience. Yes. Um, but that, that, that model of doing things so that the thing you love, you can actually do it, wasn't yeah. possible until quite recently, I think. I think it's um, kind of, I mean, I think back in those kind of 70s and definitely the 80s, possibly the 90s, there was sort of gatekeepers. So if you had to, but then if you got through that, you would then potentially have that kind of like, oh, we've got a career, you know, in, in a slightly way, you know, because you had, you know, three weekly music papers with huge circulations. And then you had John Peel, Kid Jensen, Janice Long, but John Peel especially. And then every city and town in the UK, and you've got to remember how tiny the UK is, <laughs> would have an alternative indie night, wouldn't they, on a Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday. So you could have, you know, get your transit van and do that little thing and then possibly sell quite a few records. We're not talking about a lot, but 
for five years when you're young and you're happy to be quite broke with a terrible diet, you can just about do it, but it wasn't yeah. a lot of fun. And a few people did it a bit more than others, but there was a sort of sense that you could probably say, yes, my occupation is I'm in a band. Whereas now, like you just said, you, you know, anyone can do it, but you don't quite get that, the gatekeeper that says, oh, look at this, you can go to the next level and have, have a slightly bigger audience and have a more of a, a band experience that, um, that you might have got in a previous decade. God, it swings exactly. and roundabouts. It's so tricky. <laughs> and you can just make, you can make records, you can make them to high quality for not much money if you're old enough to have worked out how to do the recording yourself. And you can get the music out there and you can create an audience and you can curate that little audience and it all works. But if, you know, those bands that we started off beginning talking about at the beginning, the bands from the the 60s and 70s, you know, the people that were almost famous that were the drummer or the bass player for a little bit in a band. Mm. If they'd wanted to come back and make a record for fun in 1978, how would they have done that? Um, And how would they have found an audience? They'd have had to have played shows. And then they would have just been a dad band, which was, would have been very looked down on in those days. Yes, uh, absolutely. No, that would have been um, probably a country so, and western band and, or Kaylee band. Um, it's yeah. such a friendly world. It's such a friendly world now for people who want to just keep expressing themselves through music, even if there's not a huge audience there for so it. So with, with making Bones of Brave Ships, that is the one, um, did you did you come together as a band to rehearse or were you still doing it kind of quite individually? Because I know a few people seem to be now recording their bits in their spaces and then bringing it all together in one, one sort of mixing desk. Or were you able to sort of actually come together and sort of play things through and sort of see what worked? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. It, uh, there's not really a formula that works all the time david but the best stuff we do has always come from jamming um particularly with with andy prestige who's the drummer he he he's just he and his kit are like an organic thing they they just exist together and when he starts playing he comes up with these lovely rhythms and the rest of us just start playing around it and our music's never particularly straightforward it's got lots of twists and turns in it so that our best stuff does tend to come when we physically are all together and we jam something. But then what you've said probably happens, which is that we'll end up with a sort of half-finished a half-finished room recording, um, which I, I will then, as, as the main writer, I'll, I'll then load up onto my computer and I'll start layering things over it and I'll build up um, more complicated melodies and I'll add the vocals eventually. And I'll, I'll sort of build it that way. So it's like I take the infrastructure home with me. It's like, it's like we build the foundations together. I pick them up, take them home, put them in my computer, and then I can start layering on top of it. But then I can only get so far like that. And that's when you begin to spot that things aren't quite joining up. And that's when you begin to, I'm going to use my house analogy. I'm going to go with it here. This is when you realize that actually it's starting to look a bit homemade, your house, that it's got like one of the rooms is missing a wall and it's not quite good enough. And at that point, we then take what we've got there back into the studio. Um, I remind everybody what they played when they built the infrastructure underneath it all. And we then are able to sort of polish it off and finish all the corners and get everything. It all sounds a bit OCD. It probably is this process. And then it all finishes. Yes. That is the way the best of it works. 
And did you and did you see the Beatles? You know, let it let it be. You know, eight hours of them sitting around, sort of oh. slowly bringing bits of music together to eventually form. Yeah, it's, it's weirdly compulsive, isn't it? There's nothing <laughs> I don't think we can add that a million journalists haven't haven't said in the last months. But it's it's great. I'm I'm only halfway through it. Right. I'm also particularly obsessed with it because it's the month I was born. I was born on the 12th of January, 1969. And, and I couldn't quite believe when I started watching it, the first episode, that it's, it's the countdown to the week I was born. My mum's in hospital the whole time. I was waiting to see what happened on the 12th, my birthday. And that's the day when um, George leaves on the 10th, which I think when my mum started going into labour, George leaves. And then nothing happens on the 11th. And on the 12th, they tell you that uh, Paul, Paul, John and Ringo and Yoko go to George's house, his mansion, there's a picture of it, and they try and convince him to come back to the band, but it doesn't go well. Yes. That was the 12th of January. Yeah. So I've, I got up to there and a little bit further. Yes. Well, it's, it's compulsive, actually. Actually, because I just remembered, I did an interview probably with someone last week, and they said they knew Glenn Johns's son, who was born around that month. And, there's, yeah. and they were really baffled, because when they watched it, they went... There was no mention of him saying, oh, by the way, I'm a father, or I've just been, you know. So they were a little bit like, I'm going to have to go and talk to the sort of son again to say, just remind me when your birthday is, because I'm sure it was when they were making that film, but your dad doesn't seem to have ever mentioned this potential, you know, fact. <laughs> so um, that was quite interesting. It does. It does well, there was it, 50 hours of it, wasn't there? There was 50 Maybe hours. Maybe Peter Jackson cut that bit out. Yeah, yeah. perhaps he did, but... Um, it doesn't end how I expect it to end. It's oh, no spoilers. I haven't actually got that yet. I'm, <laughs> I'm about halfway through yeah. the second episode. It, it's, it's, it's really quite extraordinary. I don't know. I just think, you know, it's also a bit Scooby-Doo, like, you know, who broke the Beatles, you know, it's like, you know, because we all think it's, you know, and it's like, and then the mask comes off and you go, oh, it's Jesus, you know, and you're a bit stunned at the end, you know, as well. Fuck, it's an amazing film, but it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, you, I found I started watching more of it every day, you know, I just was getting more compulsive, like, oh my God, I can't believe this, you know, and then you kind of wish that every band had done the same thing from Ziggy Stardust to Exile on Main Street to, you know, just like the Smiths, you know, just to see them in that process of coming in every day going, oh, did you watch the telly, you know, and then the way that, there was a great bit, I don't know if you've seen it, where Glenn John says, Oh, yeah, what's that song you wrote? You know, because they're a bit stuck for, you know, bits and pieces, you know, about the long, long road. And it's like, oh, okay, I'll, I oh, can yeah. work on that. And you think, Jesus, that's yeah, yeah. one of the greatest songs we've ever, ever, you know, heard in modern music. So it's boggling, really. Yes, I just wondered when you were talking about it, whether you were related, you know, could relate to the Beatles or, you know, that process of them coming together. I do. I think anyone that's that's been in a band that's, that's loved the experience probably just just you you look at that and there's so much you 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 feel in common um it's the way they just keep dicking around and playing other people's songs and and the way they're constantly playing it's it's the playfulness that's there that i think certainly chimes with me and all the bands i've been in the way that you're in the middle of seriously recording and trying to nail something and then somebody starts playing this charming man or they start playing yes yours is no disgrace depends which band you're in and everybody joins in with that for a little bit and then they yes. berate themselves because really they were supposed to be concentrating on this hard ending for their own song but somebody couldn't resist just 
for some reason. And I do love that watching it, the way just suddenly Mac is playing an Elvis song or John's decided to sing a blues song. And yes. It's that lovely playfulness and fun. And even that at the end, when apparently we're all told, oh, it's so difficult, all the personalities are taking over. But even then, there is that childlike play that's going on. Uh, I think that's the thing that I like best about it. Yes. Do you feel that with your, you know, especially with this band, that by not playing live that much, you know, you don't quite kind of discover other parts of the how the band, you know, operate? Because I know that quite a few musicians often talk about, you know, playing live a lot really does galvanise a band and you do take it to another level. Yeah, you do. I, 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 in an ideal world, we would play more. It's very difficult to do, though, pandemic notwithstanding. Um, as I say, we're, we're a band where there's not really a big audience in any one physical place. Our, our audience is so low density spread over the world that, that it's quite difficult to envisage where we would be able to play gigs. We're, festivals are the best place for us, really. And, and we do, we do play a gig at a festival every two to three years that's pretty much what we do now and that usually involves leveraging famous friends and favors from years and years and years of of doing it yes we just managed to blag our way onto the odd stage now and again but i i do miss doing it more regularly because you're absolutely right there are there's just stuff that happens um when you when you're doing all of that and it, it, it's it's often it's just the, it's just the little bits it's just the little i mentioned earlier it's just the little edges on your playing it's the finishing off of phrases where you all lock together and it's that little extra dimension that you get that is you miss i think yes so when you did your follow-up album which came out about about three years ago what was the process of that because there wasn't such a time gap between that and the the previous one well, that one, it's a bit of an oddity, this one, because it, it's, it's almost a bit like the first Peach album, where it's a whole load of songs from my whole career, really, which I, I'd cobbled together and got the rest of the band to, to finish off. Um, we, had a, we had a couple of new tracks, which Andy Prestige had half written, but a couple of them were from my Grand Western days. They were those sort of pop there was like they started off as little sort of pop blow up type songs that and I, and I kind of grunged them up a bit so quite a few of my songs have had these huge uh sort of character shifts where they've started off in one genre but i really liked the tune and the the words so i just took them somewhere else so a couple of them are very old songs one of them is a peach track pond life from nearly 30 years ago that i'd never properly recorded which i wanted on there um another one is a demo that I'd taken around to that house in Hammersmith in 1993 and played to the rest of the band. They didn't like it. And it took me about 20 years to work out how it should really go. So it is a, it's a jumble of things. That one. Um, really pleased with the way it turned out in the end. That's on bad elephant records, which was, it was nice of them to take a punt on us and actually release the, the products properly. Yes. How did you, cause the other ones, I, I'm, I'm assuming that shiny Mac is your own label. Yeah. Yes. Vanity publishing, self-publishing. Yep. That they, they have been, but that, that indie ethic gets tiring after a while. Um, it's, it's lovely setting up a little record label at first and getting the orders in over PayPal 
and going down to the post office and sending them off around the world. And I say with our with our band, it's great because one will go to Chile, one will go to the only person in New Zealand that's our fan, the other one will go off here. They go off all around the world. Um, but after a while, that does get quite hard work. There's a lot of hours out of the day putting CDs in jiffy bags and trotting down to the post office. And a lot of, yes. a lot of Brexit aggro now. Gosh, the prices and everything. So I'm I'm quite glad now that we've got. Um, so is David that... Elliot? Is he also a writer, an author, who runs um, uh, Bad Elephant Music? If David is writing, he's not told me about it. Um, there might there might be more than two Davids in the world. I just wondered if he was because there was a book. David's got a proper David's got a proper serious job where he goes to an office. So if he's doing a third thing and writing books as well, he really is a superman. Um, it must be a different man but there was a chap who came out uh, brought a book out last year called david elliott which i thought was amazing so what what did um lockdown do for the creative process of you and the band um i think it really helped it actually uh because we had um you know i don't know what your own experiences if it were david but i mean that whole reappraisal of you're spending less money because you can't go anywhere so you don't you can actually take your foot off the pedal a little bit if you're self-employed like I am. Um, I also fell through various furlough schemes, so I didn't have much money coming in. And I had just had a lot of time. Um, I had a lot of time on my hands. Uh and I was doing what I really love, which is just turning on the, the everything in the studio in the mornings, once the kids were doing their home learning downstairs, and I was writing songs again. Um it's probably the fastest writing output I'd, I'd had for a decade or so uh and we're just finishing off another album now so I've, we've got a 10 track album that should be out later this year uh and it was really good and we tried to do as i say difficult writing it because what i went i, I had a lot of old demo tapes where i was able to kind of strip the drums out of them and then write slightly more complicated music over the drum patterns so i was doing a lot of that I had materials to work with and building them up into songs. It's been really good. Uh, and over the last six months, we've, we've kept popping in and out of a studio in, in Hoxton, Holy Mountain Studios, which Misha Herring runs. It's a great place. Uh, and recording this, we've got a producer, uh, Chris Fullard, who does a lot of work with idols. He's um, been recording for us. So I got this hour of material written and we've, Got all the drums done, and now we're just tracking. And I'm trying to come up with enough hours in the day to, to, <laughs> to get all the guitar and bass and keyboard parts all tracked down on it. That's fantastic. Have you got the album, the, the sleeve all sorted out? No. <laughs> I hope Andy, Andy Prestige will hopefully do the artwork for us, uh, but I haven't quite worked out what it's going to be yet. Yes. Um, and have you got any live dates over the summer now? No, what I might do, what, one thing we do do, I hadn't mentioned, is that one other collaborator with the band is uh, another guy I was at university with called Ben Moore. Ben, if you've come across him at all, he's a very well-respected playwright and one-man show performer. Uh, ben, he's been doing it for decades, and uh, I always write music for him when he does it. He does a show every five or six years, does a run in Edinburgh, does it at festivals. And I usually write some music for that for him. And that sometimes turns into Sons of the Tundra songs. 
So we've just done a new a new show, which he was supposed to take to Edinburgh last year, but couldn't. But that the the long way of me answering your question is that we might perform at Latitude or um, know, somewhere else. He was putting it up for is it Green Man? I don't know. But we 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 have many years performed acoustic shows with Ben's spoken word. So we might do that over the summer. But there's nothing currently in the bag for um yes for a full band performance. We haven't played full band for about three or four years now. Yes, that's tricky. And if you could have said something to your kind of like a 16 or 18 year old self starting out, is there anything in particular you would have thought, oh, that would have been a a good bit of advice or some words of wisdom? I just wonder if there was anything that you think, yeah, would, would have kept doing that or would have done something slightly different? Oh, that's a difficult one. Um, the best answer I heard to this question recently was when William Shatner was asked it, and he said the advice he'd given me younger self is that nothing matters in the end, which he said is really bad advice because then you wouldn't actually do anything. So I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say to my younger self, nothing matters in the end. Um, I don't know. What I'd like to do, I would, the theme we've talked about, I would time travel back and tell my younger self that technology, culture, and the economy are changing in ways that will make everything unrecognizable. And you're not to worry about being too old to make it by the time you're 25. Mm. Take your time. Because I think, like a lot of people I knew in bands who had to give them up, we, we had this panicked way of working where if a project hadn't got signed by a major label that would give you the infrastructure and the resources you needed if that hadn't happened in two years you might as well split up because you'd missed the boat they'd passed yes. you'd, you'd hear people saying yeah the labels were down the labels were down at the bull and gate sorry lads they've all passed you think oh that's it then that's it mm-hmm. for this band um because that was the way it worked. The idea that you can take your time, graft away, doing it for you, remembering why you want to do it and getting it the way you want it. And you'll be able to make it work. It doesn't matter if you're 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 60. Um, that would be the message I'd send back to my younger self. Yes. Um, it's interesting because I know um, I did an interview with Richard, Richard Strange, who was in The Doctors of Madness. And he said, oh, we were, yeah. you know, he was 25. He said, oh, we were two years too early for punk. But everyone in the audience was, you know, formed a punk band. And it was like, God, you're only 25. But then, you know, you get people like Jarvis from Pulp, who was still going for it, you know, 10 years later, weren't they? Or Debbie Harry, who in Blondie, who was kind of 30, though I have to say she didn't look that old, actually. But yeah. there are a couple of people. But yeah, you're right. I think at that time, it was like this young person, you know, it was a young person's game, wasn't it? And everyone knew that about Jarvis. That was what made him extraordinary. People would say, you know, that Jarvis Cocker, he's in his 30s. He's been doing it for 12 years and they're not signed. And um, people would go, no, that's a bit embarrassing. Why is he still doing it? That tended to be the reaction when when you heard that, that there was someone in a band and they were were 33 and they're (laughs) not signed. Everyone (laughs) would, would... And you remembered it. And yeah, Jarvis broke that mold, didn't he? he? He kept pushing away. Yes. And then he was massive. But that that was very rare, I think. Yeah. And I think, and I do think, you know, people, you know, like, like when David Bowie brought out Black Star, 
you know, I mean, I know he was just about to die, but then, you know, you realise, well, he actually, though he did have that little moment with his health where he didn't do anything for about 10 years, he had sort of was just kind of trundling along, sort of happily putting out a couple of albums here and a couple of albums there. And, you know, you just expected the Bowie album to come every two or three years, didn't you? So, again, it was kind of, yeah, it would have continued if he hadn't had his kind of heart attack on stage that time. So I think... It has changed, you know, no one really cares anymore. I think everyone's just kind of interested in listening to the music and saying, well, do I like it or not, really? Mm. That is the main thing, isn't it? It is. It is a tricky one. Anyway, Right, I think we're at the end of that interesting chat anyway look a massive thank you to simon oaks for giving me the time for that interview and uh, this has been the c86 show, show i'm david Easter. if you want to contact me you can on facebook twitter instagram just do c86 show keep it positive nice and groovy obviously we really don't need any bad vibes and um, also all these interviews have been archived you can find those on spotify itunes podbean you can so um yes fill your boots there's a lot of them there but anyway look have a great week and stay safe.